Chapter 6, Part A, Women of America by John Roos Laris. The Sleeperbox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 6, The Latter Colonial Period. Though perhaps rather a ramification than an inherent part of the history of woman, the subject of dress among the female colonists, at least in New England, is one of too great interest to permit it to be passed over in silence in a book concerning the women of America. From the very first, retracing our steps somewhat in order to obtain a complete view of the matter, the question of female dress was one that in New England was consistently giving grave offense and even scandal till the more serious of the colonists. Sumptuary laws were passed again and again, their very repetition showing how helpless was legislation to cope with the conditions confronting it in the matter of feminine love for gods. As early as 1634, there was enacted a law which forbade any person, either man or woman, from making or buying any apparel, either woolen or silk or linen, with any lace on it, silver, gold, or thread, under the penalty of forfeiture of said clothes. Gold and silver girdles, hat-bands, belts, ruffs, and beaver hats were prohibited by the same law. But the planters were permitted to wear out such apparel as they were already provided with, except the immoderate great sleeves, slashed apparel, immoderate great rails, and long wings. Five years later there was a new piece of legislation which banished immodest great breeches, knots of ribbon, broad shoulder bands and rails, silk ruses, double ruffles and capes. And in 1651, the general court, having found its legislation futile in many respects, descended to argument and expresses its utter detestation and dislike that men or women of mean condition, education, and callings should take upon them the garb of gentlemen by the wearing of gold or silver lace or buttons or points at their knees, to walk in great boots, or women of the same rank to wear silk or tiffany hoods or scarves. If those of mean condition did these things, it is evident that the people of higher class could not have been very sober in their garb. Indeed, we know that they were not. In 1676, the Court of Connecticut passed a law that is worthy of quotation in full, since it not only sets forth the Puritan opinion upon the matter, but shows the ingenuity of their efforts to cope with the growing evil, and also gives us a good idea of the fashions of that time. Whereas excess in apparel amongst us is unbecoming a wilderness condition and the profession of the gospel, whereby the rising generation is in danger to be corrupted, which practices are testified against in God's holy word, it is therefore ordered by this court and authority thereof that what person soever shall wear gold or silver lace or gold or silver buttons silk ribbons or other costly superfluous trimmings or any bone lace above three shillings per yard 
or silk scarf the list-makers of the respective towns are hereby required to assess such persons so offending or their husbands parents or masters under whose government they are in the list of estates at one hundred and fifty pound estate and they to pay their rates according to that proportion such as men used to pay to whom such apparel allowed as suitable to their rank provided this law shall not extend to any magistrate or like public officer of this colony their wives or children who are left to their discretion in wearing of apparel or any settled military commission officer or such whose quality and estate have been above the ordinary degree though now decayed it is further ordered that all such persons as shall for the future make or weave or buy any apparel exceeding the quality and condition of their persons and estates or that is apparently beyond the necessary end of apparel for covering or comeliness either of these to be judged by the grand jury and county court where such presentiments are made shall forfeit for every such offence ten shillings and if any tailor shall fashion any garment for any child or servant contrary to the mind of the parent or master of such a child or servant he shall forfeit for every such offence ten shillings think of the position of the grand jury and county court which were to decide as to whether apparel went beyond the necessary end for covering or comeliness imagine the grave and reverend judges and the sapient jurymen putting their wise heads together over the question as to whether mistress anne's waistcoat was an inch too long for the mere needs of covering or whether mistress jane's coif was decorated with lace beyond the absolute requirement of comeliness the law doubtless meant well but from its nature it was not capable of enforcement a fairly comprehensive understanding of the wardrobe of a lady of the mid-seventeenth century may be furnished by reproducing in all the glory of its original orthography the list of the clothes of jane humphrey as given in her last will and testament mistress humphrey died in dorchester massachusetts in sixteen sixty eight and she seems to have had no possessions beyond her wardrobe this however was not uncommon at the time when clothes had a value that came from their rarity of stuff and necessary skill in fashioning so that such a list as that of the deceased lady represented a considerable amount in those days ye jump best red kersey petticoat said grey kersey waistcoat my blemish serge petticoat and my best hat my white fustian waistcoat a black silk neckcloth a handkerchief a blue apron a plain black coif without any lace a white holland apron with a small lace at the bottom red serge petticoat and a blackish serge petticoat green serge waistcoat and my hood and my muff my green linsey woolsey petticoat my whittle that is fringed and my blue short coat a handkerchief a blue apron 
my best coif with a lace, a black stuff neckcloth, a white holland apron with two breadths in it, six yards of red cloth, a green undercoat, staining kersey coat, a murray waistcoat, my cloak and my blue waistcoat, my best white apron, my best shifts, one of my best neckcloths, and one of my plain cues, one calico under neckcloth, my fine thick neckcloth, my next best neck cloth, a square cloth with a little lace on it, my green apron. It is not probable that many women of the present day, far less any man, will be able to recognize all the stuffs that were here represented, but we can easily gather that Mistress Humphrey was well provided in the matter of apparel, and the fact that her wardrobe was deemed worthy to be so divided into small portions, for each period as printed represents a beneficiary, the name being omitted as of no interest to us, of itself proves the value that in those days attached to the smallest articles of clothing yet a gown could be made at a cost of but eight shillings for the mantua maker the whole of the expense lay in the stuff which was costly in proportion to its difficulty of attainment indian stuffs were very popular among the latter colonists and in the days immediately after the revolution in the matter of general fashions at this time it may be best to quote from a work written by a woman concerning feminine costume in the older days of our country. We can gain some notion of the general shape of the dress of our forebears at various periods from the portraits of the times. Those of Madame Shrimpton and of Rebecca Rawson are amongst the earliest. They were painted during the last quarter of the 17th century. The dress is not very graceful, but far from plain, showing no trace of puritanical simplicity. In fact, it is precisely that seen in portraits of English well-to-do folk of the same date. Both have strings of beads around the neck, and no other jewels. Both wear loosely tied and rather shapeless flat hoods concealing their hair. Madame Shrimpton's having an embroidered edge about two inches wide. Similar hoods are shown in Romain de Rouge prints of the landing of King William, of the women in the coronation procession. They were like the Nithsdale hoods of Hogarth's prints, but smaller. Both New England dames have also broad collars, stiff and ugly, with uncurved horizontal lower edge, apparently trimmed with embroidery or cutwork, but both show the wooden contour of figure, which was either the fault of the artist or of the iron busk of the wearer's stays. The bodies are stiffly pointed, and the most noticeable feature of the gown is the sleeve, consisting of a double puff drawn in just above the elbow, in one case with very narrow ribbon loops. Randall Holmes, says that the sleeve thus tied in at the elbow was called a virago sleeve. Madame Shrimpton's sleeve has also a falling frill of embroidery and lace and a ruffle around the arm size. The question of sleeves 
sorely vexed the colonial magistrates. Men and women were forbidden to have but one slash or opening in each sleeve. Then the inordinate width of the sleeves became equally trying, and all were ordered to restrain themselves to sleeves half an ell wide. Worse modes were to come. Short sleeves, whereby the nakedness of the arm may be discovered, had to be prohibited, and if any such ill-fashioned gowns came over from London, the owners were enjoined to wear thick linen to cover their arms to the wrist. Existing portraits show how futile were these precautions, how inoperative these laws. Arms were bared with impunity, with complacency, and the presentment of Governor Wentworth shows three slashes in his sleeves. Not only were the arms of New England women bared to an immodest degree, but their necks also, calling forth many a just and seasonable reprehension of naked breasts. The gowns thus cut in the pink of the English mode proved too scanty to suit Puritan ministers. The fair weavers wore them as long as they were in vogue. It is curious to note in the oldest gowns I have seen that the method of cutting and shaping the waist or body is precisely the same as at the present day. The outlines of the shoulder and back seams, of the bust seams, are of the same, though not so gracefully curved, and the number of pieces is usually the same. Very good examples to study are the gorgeous brocaded gowns of Peter Faneuil's sister, perfectly preserved and now exhibited in the Boston Art Museum. That the record made in this quotation may be complete, it must be supplemented by a few words devoted to another aspect of fashion among the early Puritans. This was in the matter of hairdressing. That fashion which went to such enormous lengths in England during the 18th century. A curious fact is that the Puritan women seem generally to have worn bangs, and this fact is more of a certificate to their simplicity than to their taste. However, there was a large leaven of fashion in the towns of the Puritans, for in 1683, Increase Mather thus spoke of the mode of his day. Will not the haughty daughters of Zion refrain from pride in their apparel? Will they lay out their hair and wear their false locks, their borders and towers, like comets about their heads? These queries suggest decided lengths in head adornment, probably even to the adoption of the heartbreakers worn in 1670, which are described as false locks set on wires to make them stand at a distance from the head. One would think that such frank admission of falsity might plead its own excuse, but one Puritan minister describes the women of that time as apes of fancy, frizzling, and curling of the hair. Enough of dress and fashion, yet some record thereof is pertinent here, for it shows us the gradual change which was being worked in the customs and ideas of New England. The colonists were becoming conventional. When modishness comes in at the door, individuality flies out at the window. The idea of the home was being modified, not to say altered. 
there had always been among a certain element a love for the gods and fripperies of the world but it was not until the opening of the second colonial period that this element grew to the ascendancy in new england the old primitive simplicity as a national attribute was beginning to fail and in its stead was being imported a conventional complexity of life in the mother country new england was becoming more deserving of her name she was growing to be a lesser england instead of a new civilization she was fast falling into the errors that were undermining the true american spirit in the southern colonies we have seen the wardrobe of a new england woman presumably one of fashion yet not of notable rank here was a great change from the era when the majority of women wore homespun and furnished themselves with the material which they wore as well as fashioned the garments with their own hands of course there was still and long continued to be an element that preserved the household traditions of the earlier settlers and thus the individuality of the life but it had come to be in the minority the new england woman taken from the representative class no longer whirled her spinning-wheel and wove the garments for her wearing and that of her family she looked to her goodman to import these things from england in the vessels which were now regularly arriving in the home ports another sign of the changed conditions of the new england home was the matter of domestic service in sixteen eighty seven according to the writer of the diary of a french refugee in boston there was absolute need of hired help but it was less household servants than field hands to whom the author was referring later however we find hugh peters of salem writing to an acquaintance in boston we have heard of a dividence of women and children in the bay and would be glad of a share viz a young woman or girl and boy if you think good this points to domestic service as does a later letter from the same source in which he says my wife desires my daughter to send to hannah that was her maid now at charleston to know if she would dwell with us for truly we are now so destitute having now but an indian that we know not what to do later yet in the beginning of the eighteenth century we find in the journals frequent advertisements of runaway servants mostly indians there was also negro slavery in the northern colonies though it was never entirely accepted as an institution not from any moral scruples but because of inexpediency and poverty in sixteen forty five emmanuel downing suggested the exchange of indian captives for negroes and said i do not see how we can thrive until we get a stock of slaves sufficient to do all our business but this probably referred to field hands though he later wrote to england for godly skilful painstaking girls as servants and in default of these he at last fairly inaugurated the system of slavery which existed for a time in new england there were white slaves as well as black in the northern colonies 
and this infamous custom helped to solve the problem of domestic service. That there was trouble with servants in the old days, even as in these present, is amply attested by the records, but it was possible to resort to more drastic measures than are now feasible. We read that at Hartford, Susan Coles, for her rebellious carriage towards her mistress, is to be sent to the house of correction and be kept to hard labor and coarse diet, to be brought forth the next lecture day, to be publicly corrected, and so to be corrected weekly until order be given to the contrary. This was in the early times, and many matrons of later days, even as many now, must have longed for the return of the laws which enabled them to keep their servants in order. Mary Dudley has set forth her experience in this matter in a letter to her mother, Madame Winthrop, whom she had asked to send her a good girl, a strong lusty servant, used to all kind of work, who would refuse none. Her letter of complaint is worth quoting at large, as showing the conditions of the New England housekeeper of that day in relationship to her help. A great affliction I have met with by my maid-servant, and now I am like through God his mercy to be freed from it. At her first coming to me she carried herself dutifully, as became a servant, but since, through mine and my husband's forbearance towards her for small faults, she hath got such a head and is grown so insolent that her carriage towards, viz, especially myself, is unsufferable. If I bid her do a thing, she will bid me to do it myself, and she says how she can give content as well as any servant, but she will not, and says, if I love not quietness, I was never so fitted in my life, for she would make me have enough of it. If I should write to you of all the reviling speeches and filthy language she hath used towards me, I should but grieve you. There is more of it, but enough has been quoted to show the tone, which is strikingly prophetic of many things of the present day. Even a piece of our reprehensible slang seems foreshadowed in that phrase, She hath got such a head. In another letter, this time written by a man, John Winthrop, we hear the Irish creature, whom he and his wife have for servant, is a very plague. She is lying and unfaithful, would do things on purpose in contradiction and vexation to her mistress, lie out of the house and nights, and have contrivances with fellows that have been stealing from our estate, and get drink out of our cellar for them saucy and impudent she'd frequently take her mistress's caps and stockings handkerchiefs etc to dress herself and away without leave among her companions so that the servant question was just as difficult of solution among our great-great-grandmothers as for ourselves yet from this very condition of servitude blossomed one of the purest flowers of romance that we find in the history of the early days of our country, the story of Agnes Surridge. She was but a servant, a mere drudge, scrubbing the floor of the tavern at Marblehead, when her beauty attracted the attention of young Sir Harry Franklin, 
then collector of the port of Boston. Noting that she was barefooted, he gave her a crown to buy a pair of shoes, but on a subsequent visit he saw her again scrubbing and still shoeless. His question as to the disposition of his crown elicited the reply that she had bought the shoes but was keeping them to wear to meeting, and though there would seem to be no great wit herein, it is recorded that Franklin thought that a reply had never been made with such charming grace. At all events, he incontinently fell in head over heels in love, but his pride of family forbade marriage, and it would seem that at first his intentions toward the young girl were credible enough, since he had her educated by the best masters in Boston, and especially instructed in religion by Reverend Dr. Edward Holyoke, president of Harvard College. So matters went until Agnes was twenty-three, but then Franklin's passion would no longer be denied, though he had no intention of making the low-born girl his wife. But she loved him with a love too great to balk at conventions. She felt herself his wife in heart, and she gave herself unreservedly to him. For a time they lived together in Boston, but scandal became too strong, and they went into the country, where they lived for about three years in the ideal country life of the day, a life much like that of the Virginia planter. Then they went on a visit to England, but the relatives of Franklin would have none of them, and they went to travel on the continent. After about a year of wandering, they settled down at Lisbon, and were there during the terrible earthquake that visited that city on All Saints' Day, 1755. During that catastrophe, Franklin was in mortal peril, and in his moments of pain and danger, he vowed that, if he were saved, he would make Agnes his wife, in fact, as she had so long been in heart. Scarcely had the vow been recorded before Agnes was at his side, having searched for him and come in time to aid his rescue. He did not forget his oath when the danger was past, and the next day married her according to the rites of the Church of Rome, the ceremony being repeated according to English customs while they were on their homeward voyage. Agnes, now Lady Franklin, was on this occasion well received in England, but the hearts of the lovers, for such they still were, inclined to Boston, the scene of their first loves, and they soon crossed the ocean and took up their residence in the Clark Mansion on Garden Street in Boston. Here they lived until 1757, when Franklin was appointed Consul General at Lisbon, but in 1763 they once more returned to the city of their early love and lived there until 1768, when they went to England, where Franklin died. Lady Franklin then returned once more to her now desolate home, though she did not live in the Clark Mansion, but in Hopkington, where she dwelt until the Revolution, where she once more suffered exile, this time as a Tory. She went to England, and there she harmed the romance of her life by her marriage to John Drew, a rich banker, but she died within a year at the age of fifty-eight, and one can only regret 
that death did not anticipate that unfaithfulness to the memory of her first lover. Even with its luckless anticlimax, there are few stories so romantic as that of the beautiful scrubbing girl of Marblehead, and she may well be remembered as one of the most prominent figures of colonial womanhood. Let us now return to matters more immediately connected with the earlier part of the period which we are considering, and among them there is none of more interest, even though it be hardly enduring, than the story of the epidemic of witchcraft at Salem. It must be remembered that at the witchcraft outbreak at Salem, though it was there most exaggerated, was yet typical. It was the day of superstition, and that superstition was both received and fostered mostly by women. The outbreak at Salem was, in a way, salutary, for its very violence brought about the reaction which soon culminated in the establishment of a truer creed and a different influence for women. But at the time it was in the actual direction of primitive development in America. It began with the troubles between the parish of Salem and the lately called minister, one Samuel Paris, into the nature of which troubles it is not necessary to enter. In 1689, Mr. Paris had come to Salem from the West Indies, and he had brought with him two colored servants. These people, John Indian and Tituba, his wife, were experts in palmistry, second sight, magic, and incantations, and they soon infected a circle of the village children with love for these matters. The daughter and the niece of Mr. Paris, aged respectively nine and eleven, were among the most prominent at first, but they had older companions who soon began to make earnest that which in its inception was only intended as a play. The girls learned to go into trances, to talk gibberish, to creep about on all fours, and generally to give a good imitation of the pythonesses of old. The chief of these young people were Mary Walcott and Elizabeth Hubbard, each aged seventeen, Elizabeth Booth and Susanna Sheldon, each aged eighteen, and Mary Warren and Sarah Churchill, each aged twenty. These, however, though the leaders in a way, did not long retain the supremacy, for it was found that Anne Putnam, aged twelve, and Mercy Lewis, aged seventeen, were preeminent for mischief and ingenuity. Another leader in the mischief was Mrs. Anne Putnam, about thirty years of age, and probably of unsound mind, though she was apparently not suspected of anything beyond vindictiveness and eccentricity. She was a beautiful and well-educated woman, admirably fitted for the part she was destined to play in the coming orgy of murder. The antics of these girls, not improbably first carried out in a spirit of sport, were begun at the parsonage about Christmas, 1691, but after a time they were challenged for their actions, when they declared that they could not help themselves being bewitched. Instead of disregarding their folly, 
or attributing it to childish mischief, and putting a stop to it by the strong hand, Mr. Paris published the matter to the world. The children now found themselves of a sudden objects of the most widespread scrutiny. They also found themselves, it is not absurd to suppose, in a position where they deemed themselves in peril if they were discovered to be impostors. They were soon acknowledged as truly suffering from witchcraft, and then began the inquisition as to the guilty parties. Tituba, the Indian hag, who had probably taught them the tricks which they now put into effect against her, was the first named by them as one of their tormentors, and then followed the names of Sarah Good and Sarah Osborne, two old women with few friends. Tituba confessed, it is at least possible, because of the craze for notoriety often to be found in such people. But the two white women denied their guilt, and all were sent to Boston for trial. The matter might now well have been allowed to die out, but the girls had tasted power and were anxious for more. End of Part A